I want to start this morning with a confession. Don't worry, it's not drastic. I am a huge fan of naval warfare stories from the 1800s. A little odd, I know. Uh, this started back in 2006 or so. I was traveling a lot for work. I was bored out of my mind in an airport somewhere in the Midwest. So I did what you do. I went into the overpriced bookstore, looked through all the titles, and just picked one that had a ship on the cover because it looked cool. Um, three or four hundred pages later, I had fallen in love with the story. I had fallen in love with the characters. And so I read it on my several flights that week. And as it came to a close, I was kind of annoyed because I wanted more, right? But I could see the pages thinning down in the book. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience with a movie or a sports team or really anything, where you get attached to the players, the characters, you want more. I, I kind of feel that way, as I often do, but I feel that way about Acts. We are, spoiler alert, drawing to a close in Acts. We're in chapter 26, and at least in my copy, there's only 28 chapters. So, I will miss the care. I feel this every time. I felt this when we retold Mark in Sunday school. And so I feel this sense of wanting more, of, of being worried about the story being over. And Paul, as we've seen, we've come to become friends with Paul in a way. We've seen him do a lot. We've seen him kind of take over the baton from Peter. We've seen him beaten. We've seen him uh, on several trials. Um, he's had in the space since we last heard part of the story, he was arrested by the Romans because the Jews threatened to tear him apart. Um, several death threats and death plots later, which we will skip over, Acts slows way down, and we get to Acts 26. And what this is, is this is the story of Paul giving what is, winds up being, again, spoiler alert, his final defense. All these accusations, all these people wanting to do him harm, now he's given the stage to speak for himself and present his last defense. But unlike me, in thinking, oh, the story is about at an end, the way Paul talks, and we'll hear it this morning, is not like he's giving his last statement. And you'll see what I mean here in just a minute. Paul doesn't act like this is an end at all. And as I read Acts 26, I will read the whole thing. So you might want to pull out your Bible or your text. It's page 993 in the Pew Bible. Um, look for three things that I'll talk about this morning. Look for an unorthodox defense, a surprising defense, an unexpected plea, 
and an unstoppable kingdom. Listen as we read, as I read Acts 26. By the way, Paul at this point is before two people, Festus and Agrippa. And we'll talk about them in a moment just when you hear their names. Agrippa said to Paul, Acts 26 verse 1, you have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and he began his defense. He said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially since you are very knowledgeable about all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial because of the hope in what God promised our ancestors. The promise our 12 tribes hope to reach as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why do any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? In fact, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I actually did this in Jerusalem. I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priests. And, and when they were put to death, I was in agreement with them. In all the synagogues, I often punished them and tried to make them blaspheme. Since I was terribly enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. Now, I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priests, King Agrippa, while I was on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic. It said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I asked, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a share, a place, among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, right? Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first and to those in Jerusalem and in all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason, a Jew seized me in the temple and they were trying to kill me. To this very day, I have had help from God and I stand and I testify to both small and great, 
saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, as Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, You're out of your mind, Paul! All this studying is, is driving you mad! But Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters, and I can speak boldly to him. For I am convinced that none of these things have escaped his notice, since it was not done in a corner. Uh, king Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, Are you going to convince me uh, to become a Christian so easily? I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. The king, the governor, Bernice, and those sitting with them got up, and when they had left, they talked with each other and said, this man's not doing anything worth death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been released, could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let me pray as we start. Jesus, thank you for stories. Thank you for the story of Paul. Help us to have fresh eyes to see uh, how Paul is thinking and what you have encouraged him with. May we be encouraged by the same things this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So, three things I promised, right? Unorthodox defense, an unexpected plea, and an unstoppable kingdom. First two will be quick, and we'll spend most of our time on the third. Uh, first off, an unorthodox defense. Paul, as I said before, has a chance to defend himself. And I would argue, having watched a lot of Matlock, that he does a very poor job in terms of defending himself. He doesn't answer the accusations. He doesn't say, hey, I, I was with these Gentiles in the temple when they arrested me, but they were ceremonially clean, or their, their testimony doesn't... He doesn't do any of that, right? No formal defense of himself. He, he talks about being accused of hope. And in case we missed the idea that he's not defending himself, uh, we get King Agrippa down in verse 28, right? Who basically point blank asks the question, are you trying to make me a Christian? That is what Paul's defense consists of. Not of a defense, but of an unexpected plea, right? And Paul is making this plea for his audience to become as he is, to become followers of Jesus. And I love the way he does it because he's, he runs the gamut. You know, often in our world, you talk to people and either they're hyper-rational, very logical, kind of like Spock from Star Trek, or they tend to be very emotional. One of the two, where it's all emotion and personal experience. Paul does both here. 
Verse 24 reveals this, right? Festus says, Paul, you are insane. You, this can't be possible. And Paul's response is to say, well, hey, actually I'm talking to King Agrippa. Because King Agrippa has been around. He's familiar with uh, Jewish customs. He's seen all of this stuff happen. By the way, King Agrippa was about 8 or 12 years old when Jesus dies. So he's seen a lot of this. He's heard a lot of this. And Paul's defense to being called crazy is saying, look, we didn't hide any of these events. You saw them. Everybody knows what took place. It's a rational argument. Secondly, he uses emotional argument, right? Because what does Paul do for the third time in our story of Acts? He retells what his experience was like. I was full throttle anti-Jesus, that I'm on the road in the middle of nowhere, big shiny light, Jesus talks to me myself, and everything changed, right? It's his own personal story, his own story of transformation. And then the last thing, it's not just rational, it's not just emotional, but he points to where he really wants to head, because all throughout, he says it doesn't just make, his plea doesn't just make rational sense. It doesn't just make emotional sense, but it makes what I'll call biblical sense. His argument is that everything has been pointing to Jesus. Uh, Verses 6 and 7, he talks about uh, the hope of our fathers, like I said before. What our 12 tribes hope to attain. Uh, Verse 22, he says, this is nothing but what Moses and the prophets said would happen. In verse 27, he acts it very directly. He says, don't you believe the prophets? How could you not buy into this? Uh, what, for Paul, what, what this has done is it's kind of shown the, the events that have happened are what everything has been leading up to. And ultimately, he points to the resurrection as a resolution of all that comes before. The res- resurrection for Paul, we've seen it throughout Acts, changes everything. It emboldens him. And that's why, emboldens him, excuse me, that's why he's not defending himself, but trying to make his audience think as he does. Paul believes the resurrection changes everything, and Jesus, by being raised, has started the advancement of an unstoppable kingdom. Which, of course, is our third point. An unstoppable kingdom. You hear it already here in verses 8 when Paul says, why do you think it's crazy that God raises the dead? And in verse 23, he's more explicit. He says that Christ must suffer, must be the firstborn among the dead, so rise again, and become light to us all. And if we think about Acts, we've heard this all along, right? We started with a resurrected, raised Jesus who sends people out to go and be his witnesses. And his instructions were what? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in the whole world, right? It's an expansion of this kingdom. And now, like I said, Paul is is near the end of at least Acts. So we're tempted to see it at the end of his story or his swan song, but that's not how he sees it, right? He sees it more as the, maybe the end of the beginning of an expansion of this kingdom. 
And, and this makes sense. Uh, I agree with what Paul is selling because this makes sense with the other stories we've heard. It, we, we told Mark in the gym over the last half year. And Jesus shows up and he's baptized and he walks into the tabernacle. And what does he says? say? He says, the kingdom of God is here. And what happens everywhere Jesus goes? The kingdom breaks in. People are redeemed. People are restored. In Mark alone, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see. The kingdom seems to be a place of restoration, of redemption for people. And for Paul, uh, the resurrection makes all the difference. It's, have you ever gone camping or gone on vacation and you show up at your destination in the dark? And maybe you know there's a lake out there somewhere and there's some trees, but you're wandering around. Maybe you're putting up your tent or you're driving around. You're like, I kind of know what's going on. The resurrection is like dawn the next day. You wake up, you walk out, and you're like, oh, there's a lot more here than I thought. I had a, a, a dark inkling, a dark understanding of what was out there, but now in the light of day, everything makes sense. Everything is revealed. That's what the resurrection does. And I want to I hit on three key truths really quick here about the resurrection. Because Jesus was raised, it means three things. It means bluntly, that he is the king. At the end of Mark, as he dies, we heard over and over again, this is the king of Jews. This is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. By being raised, gospel writers are saying, yes, he is the king. It's the coronation of his kingship. And Paul, therefore, can rest, knowing that no matter who he's facing, King Agrippa, Caesar in Rome, whatever, he knows that Jesus is in control. Jesus knows what's going on, and nothing is happening without his authority. So first, Jesus is the king. Second, the kingdom is expanding. And again, we've seen this all along in Acts, right? We started out in Jerusalem with a small group watching him go, and then we were in the room when the wind came and the Spirit came. And every once in a while, we get these, these updates about, well, now we added 500, now we added 2,000, now we added 6,000. And you get the sense of just an inevitable march from Jerusalem to Judea to the known world. Psalm 72 describes the ultimate end of all of this, which has always been the plan, where God's presence and his restoration, his redemption, his rule fills the whole earth. Just like his presence uh, filled uh, the tabernacle originally so much that Moses couldn't go in. Just like his presence uh, was with us actually back even in the garden. Just like his presence filled Solomon's temple so that no one could enter. Now God's presence is on the march and it will fill the whole world through each of us. Ultimately, obviously, it'll be consumed in the end time. Uh, we'll actually come to realization. 
but it is inevitable. So Jesus is the king. The kingdom is expanding. And third, the kingdom, and this is the most fascinating thing to me, the kingdom, as I said before, restores, remakes, redeems. And I feel like I often overlook this. Uh, Jesus being resurrected, what happens? He comes back, he appears in the room, early in Acts, and people don't quite believe it, and so they want to touch him, right? They want to touch his wounds. They want to make sure it's actually him. So what has not happened, it's not like he went away and got a new body or a new existence and came back. He wasn't destroyed and then recreated. His body was restored. His body was redeemed. He was made whole. It's still him, right? And he's the firstborn among creation, which means we're going to follow the same path, right? Which is really encouraging to me, because that means that for the followers of Jesus, the people we met in Mark, every conversation they had with them, every meal they had with them, every, every walk of, you know, half a mile, none of that was wasted, right? It's like meeting with an old friend you haven't seen for years. You still have that history with them, right? You've seen them change. You've changed. Uh, but all of it matters. All of that past experience matters. Um, the, the goal is never replacement. It's always redemption and transformation. Uh, think of Moses uh, coming out of Exodus. He's on the mountain and gets the Ten Commandments. He's going to take it down to them. And down below, they're making a golden calf that they claim brought them out of Egypt, right? And so God has prepped Moses for this moment. And God says, look, Moses, don't worry about it. I'll wipe them all out. We'll start over with you. And like I said, God has prepared Moses for this moment. And he, I feel like he says that, and he goes, and what are you going to do? And Moses says, no, 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 no. We're not starting over. Take me instead, Right? It's because what God is always about, has always been about, is redeeming, restoring. Not a replacement, but a redemption remaking. And that's why when Jesus declares the kingdom, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the blind see, it's restoration and redemption and healing. So, Jesus is the king, the kingdom is expanding, and the kingdom is all about restoration and redemption. So, for us here at Brentwood, this speaks volumes, right? Those three things. Jesus is the king. It's easy to say, oh, well, we're, we're in this alone. Or we, he doesn't know what's going on, but that's not right, right? He's always known what's been happening on this block of Woodrow for the past 70 years. He knows what the plan is. He knows how his kingdom will expand, which is the second thing, right? His kingdom is expanding. Those of us in this room and watching online have a heart for people knowing Jesus in Austin, in Brentwood, in the city at large. And Jesus has an agenda. His kingdom is advancing. And finally, his kingdom restores, remakes, and redeems. Right? Like I said, um, nothing is ever thrown away. Nothing is ever 
wasted, right? Everything we do, everything you've done, everything Brentwood has done over the years matters. And I'm just the latest benefactor. Benefactor, beneficiary, not benefactor. Let me flip that. I and my family are just the latest to be blessed by Brentwood, right? Uh, just like looking for that book, uh, feeling lonely, you know, we, we came and we've been blessed by y'all, by your faithfulness, by your love for Jesus. And as we think about transitions here, we should take the attitude of Paul, right? It's not, it's the next transition, right? When I, when I found that sailing book, like I said, it's an author by the name of Patrick O'Brien, in case anyone is really bored and want to read a bunch of sailing stories. Uh, it turns out, I got home, I was kind of bummed because that book was, I had read that book three times on the trip. I got home and I went on some bookstores back in the day before Amazon. Turns out, that's only the first story. He wrote 21 novels over like 20 years. And so that took me a good several years. The point is, it's only one story in a long string, right? What we're thinking about, uh, the future of Brentwood, the future of us, it's one story in a long string, right? We are like Paul. Uh, we're seeing a, a transition. Paul is headed to Rome in chains, but he doesn't see it like that, right? He sees a, an unbroken line of what Jesus is doing. He knows that Jesus is alive, and so Jesus is the king. He knows that Jesus is alive, so that Jesus' kingdom is always expanding. He knows that Jesus is alive, and so Jesus redeems and restores all things. Jesus is alive, and so it is an unstoppable kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for stories. Thank you that you don't leave us where we are, that you have a plan, and that your resurrection changes everything. It not only uh, saves us, but it, it proves your kingship. It, it proves that your kingdom will always expand. It proves that you will redeem and restore everything. Thank you that you call us to participate with you. Thank you that you so want to be with us, uh, that you would come and die and then rise again and allow us to participate. Give us hope, give us encouragement, and help us to trust and to see what you're doing. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.